concluding a series today that we've been working on for, this is week number six, um, from the Old Testament book of the promise uh, of the prophet Malachi. And uh, series, as the slide says, is called uh, God's Covenant Love. And uh, just a, a quick, quick review <clears throat> will help those who are just joining us today for the series, uh, maybe for the first time, and uh, serve as a bit of a reminder for us where we've been over the last six weeks. Um, Malachi's name um, literally means messenger. Um, Malak is the, the Hebrew word for messenger or also angel, um, what, we, what we call angelic beings, um, Malak. And so Malachi is my messenger. It's God's, God's saying Malachi is my messenger. Um, so he was aptly named for sure. Um, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, both in the order in your Bible the last book in the Old Testament, but also uh, it, the, when it was written chronologically. It was written about 400 years before Christ and is the last prophetic message to God's people before 400 years of silence leading up to Christ's coming. Um, God in this prophecy is calling people back to faithfulness in their relationship with him. He speaks of his covenant love for them, right? Meaning his promise to love them and to carry out his plan of salvation through them. But he also calls them to, to follow through on their covenant promise to him. To live for his plan and purpose on the earth. And in the same way, God today in his covenant relationship with his people, this new covenant in Christ's blood, which we'll celebrate at the end of the message, right? This new covenant in Christ's blood shed on the cross means that he is committed to those who trust in him and who believe in him to love them, to forgive them, to heal them, to provide for them, and to save them. And he calls us today to walk in covenant, committed relationship with him as well. To be committed to him, to set, set ourselves and our lives apart as holy for him. To walk in obedience to his call and his purpose. Living in covenant with God is not often convenient. It's not often convenient. In fact, it will cost you to walk in covenant relationship with God. It will cost you. But even when it costs, the benefits far outweigh whatever you trade in. And so today's message as we conclude the book of Malachi is covenant not convenient. Covenant, not convenient. We're going to talk about a couple of 
inconvenient and uncomfortable words and concepts today. Some words that don't get used in preaching a lot anymore. Partially because they're misunderstood. But also partially because they're just unpopular. And both of these are terrible reasons to not talk about biblical things. If they're misunderstood, then we need to talk about them in ways that make them clear and understood or embrace the mystery of the things that we don't and may never understand, right? And if they're unpopular, scriptural truths are unpopular, so what? Right? Because the Bible never sets out to win a popularity contest. It's not the goal. So the first, first big point today is uh, caving to culture. Caving to culture. We start in Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. If you're following in your Bibles or Bible apps, Malachi 3, verse 13. First of all, we'll read verse 13 to 15. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Remember this, those of you who have been with us for six weeks, right? There's this back and forth conversation between God and the people, right? God says something and then he anticipates their question and then he answers their, their question, right? And And so we have that again. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly, evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. So God says many, many of his people, and I believe this, what we're reading here today could be just as easily written today, spoken by God to the church today, right? Um, it is futile to serve God. This assumes that serving God is really about serving me. Unless I get out of it what I want, then it's a waste of my time to serve God. That's what that means. It's futile to serve God. If I don't benefit from this, if I, don't, if I don't get out of it what I want, then what's the point? It's so interesting how things don't change in spite of 2,400 years of human history, right? These people that God is writing to, they've been trained in the scriptures. They've been brought up to know and serve God But they looked around at them, at the culture, and the ungodly 
seem to be better off. They seem to be richer, more popular, and they seem to be happier. And therefore, serving God didn't add up for them. This may make sense to us if this life is all that matters. And if being happy and comfortable is the most important and highest goal, then maybe it makes sense to weigh the value of serving God on whether, whether it serves me or not. Right? He, he says, they say, what do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going around like mourners before the Lord Almighty? In other words, holding to biblical truth and biblical standards in the face of a cultural tide of permissive, pers, permissiveness and perversion just doesn't seem to be worth it for some. Not only do people want to not be persecuted for standing up for biblical truth, they don't even want to be perceived as having an opinion that differs from the cultural majority. Too much of the historic church of Jesus has taken a, well, if you can't beat them, join them, attitude. We cannot, folks, we cannot take our cues from the world as far as what we should believe or what is true. We cannot take our cues from the world. Church of England has been in the news over the last month or so because of their national, in their national synod conference, they opened the door to, to blessing same-sex unions in an attempt to be relevant or palatable to the British public. But the majority of the Anglican movement around the world pushed back pushed back saying, uh, you know, what are you doing, right? What are you doing? Why are you changing 2,000 years of church teaching and practice because in the last 30 years, it's become inconvenient to hold that position? I can appreciate being relevant in the sense of speaking biblical truth in a language that the culture can hear and understand. But when we start to change the message so that it fits in with the culture, we have crossed a very troubling and dangerous line. It is not our job, folks. It is not our job ever to fit in in this world. We are not called to be cultural chameleons. In fact, we are called to be counter-cultural, to be different than the culture, to stand out as different in the world. When did we stop being okay with that, right? 
just because it might cost us something, the church is wavering and waffling. I'm ready to pay the price for being different. I hope that you are too, because that's what we're called to. We don't walk around being obnoxious. We don't walk around, you know, looking for trouble or looking for reasons to, to turn people off, but we also don't try to fit in in this world. First Peter 2 verse 9. Um, I, I really like the way the King James Version says this. We have a runner. First Peter 2 verse 9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Turn to your neighbor, look them in the eye, and say, man, you are peculiar. Right? You are peculiar. You know what? We should be okay with that. I'm okay to be a little bit weird. In fact, aren't we all just a little bit weird, right? <laughs> and being weird for Jesus is just, um, is, is okay, right? Romans 12 verse 2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world. This world has a pattern, it has a, it has a value system, it has a way of thinking, a way of behaving, and scripture tells us, do not conform, don't, don't fit into the mold, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? The world, in all kinds of ways, sends its messages to your mind every day. And oftentimes, your flesh, the part of you that wants to, uh, that wants to live for pleasure, that wants to live for what makes me comfortable, happy, makes me feel good. Your flesh often wants to agree with the message of the world, right? And so we need, to be, we need to be aware, we need to be diligent, we need to be attentive to what goes on in our minds. And we need to not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, be changed, be metamorphosized, Right? It's literally that word, metamorphosis in the Greek. Like a caterpillar to a butterfly, right? To be transformed into something more glorious and more beautiful by the renewing of your mind. How do we do that? 
by spending time in God's word and let his, his truth, his thoughts, his patterns, his values become what we synchronize, what we sink our mind to, not the patterns of this world, right? All right, here's one of those words we're going to talk about. The fear of God. Fear of God. Let's read starting in verse 16 to verses 16 to 18. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession, those who feared the Lord. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. The first thing we notice about this verse, I, I, I just think this is so beautiful, so amazing, that we get this window into the interaction between heaven and earth. These people are worshipers of God, people whose hearts are yielded to him and love him and want to serve him. And they're just hanging out, talking together. By the way, I can't remember if Pam mentioned it, but uh, Soup Sunday after church. It's coming. Anybody hungry? Yep. Time change, it's already like 12.30 by your bellies, isn't it? No? No, it's 10.30. I don't know what it is. Hungry anyways. But as we sit and visit downstairs, sit across table from one another and share our lives together, share stories together, share the goodness of God together and just talk together, the Lord is listening. And he hears the cry of our hearts. He hears what matters to us. That our everyday conversations can actually be a form of prayer when they are God-focused and oriented. When our hearts are oriented to the Lord. We sit and talk with one another. It's a beautiful form of prayer. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? That God is listening, folks. Also, we notice here that twice this passage uses the word fear. Those who feared the Lord. We don't talk a lot about the fear of God these days. Probably because it sounds weird 
to think that God is the kind of person we should be scared of. But I'm not sure that's what it's saying. I think, I think in fact, we've worked hard in the last 30 or 40 years in the church to undo some of the unfortunate characterizations of God that have been used by religion in the past to control people and keep them in line with fear. When we speak of fearing God, what we don't mean is that God is a cruel or violent madman from whom we need to hide in the corner somewhere. That is not what we mean. I see it kind of like this. Fearing the Lord in one sense is kind of like an NB power line worker who handles 13,000 volts of electricity in a transmission line. When they're on the job, it is not time to pull pranks on their coworkers. It is not time to be careless or sloppy in what they do and how they do it. Electricity isn't mean or cruel, it's just powerful and not respecting it will kill you. God is powerful. He is holy. He is always right. And He is not to be toyed with. I love this interaction in one of my favorite books of all time, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. And uh, the, the children in the story are just becoming aware of Aslan. Aslan is the Christ figure in the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And, and he's characterized as a, as a lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought, he, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Right? God is not safe, but he is good. Yes, he's a safe place to run to in times of trouble, but it is not safe to mock God. It is not safe to disrespect him. It is not safe to flippantly disobey him without repentance. So 
So God promises, having heard these prayers of those who fear him, those who worship, those who respect him, those who yield to him, that he will spare them and have compassion on them. And he says there is coming a day when there will be a great distinction, a great divergence between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. And that leads us to our third point and another word. Taking taking on all the the light and fluffy stuff this morning. The wrath of God. Another awkward word we don't, um, don't hear much about anymore. In fact, there are many today who are trying to write this word out of the Bible altogether. I've spoken to many um, teachers and theologians who, who say, well, when the Bible says that word, it doesn't really mean God's wrath. It means something else. And, and it's a difficult word, no question. The word wrath is a difficult word, isn't it? It is. But it's also, I would suggest to you this morning, a very misunderstood word, like the fear of God. The wrath of God is very misunderstood. One thing, the wrath of God is not, again, is a picture of a really angry person who has been pushed too far and flies into a rage and just starts hurting and killing people. It's kind of what we think of when we think of wrath, isn't it? Like just somebody who's just lost it. But that's not what the Bible is talking about when it speaks of the wrath of God. In fact, if we're going to try and understand, try and understand God's wrath from the starting place of human emotion, rather than beginning with anger, We need to begin with love. Scripture tells us God is love. It doesn't say anywhere God is anger. Right? God is love. So starting from that starting place of love, Scripture tells us that God is love. That doesn't mean that God is niceness and fuzziness and tolerance, which is our world's description of love these days, right? It means that God actively cares for every human and wants the very best for them. And the very best is his glory. And we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you love someone, say you're, if you have kids and grandkids, 
You love them. What would you do if someone came to harm them? Right? What would you, what would you do? Would you be tolerant to that person? Smile? Tell them how nice they are? Tell them, oh, just have a great day. I love you. Or would something rise up inside of you to protect and defend the ones that you love? Right? God's wrath is the flip side of his love. Sin poisons and destroys the creatures and creation which God loves. If God looked on corporate greed and war and theft and murder and child trafficking and rape and the destruction of the environment and the porn industry and all the evil of the world and just winked and said, oh, aren't those, you know, those people will be people. Humans will be humans. I love them all. I just tolerate them all. How loving would it be if God ignored the, the poison and, and vileness and destruction of sin and just said, ah. right? Every, every child whose life has been destroyed by abuse deserves a God whose love includes justice. So as we read verses chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, it says, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked, and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. We may not want God to be a God of wrath. We may not be comfortable with the idea that God is going to judge the world. 
But God is who he has revealed himself to be, not who we want him to be. One of the biggest problems in the church today is that we want to remake God in our image instead of realizing he has made us in his. God is a God of love, but not wishy-washy, tolerant love, but deep covenant love. And his love necessitates his wrath. Progressive Christianity, which is what today is being called what we used to call liberal theology, progressive Christianity wants a palatable God, a tame God. This um, quote from the 20th century theologian Richard Niebuhr says, Liberalism believes in a God without wrath who brings a man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Minimizing or undoing the wrath of God takes away the power and the significance of the cross. If there is no wrath, then there is nothing to be saved from. That means Jesus just came to give us a little bump in our lives, just a little, a little boost. We don't really need him to save us, we just... Jesus, just give me a little pick-me-up. But folks, he came to save us. He came to rescue us. He came to redeem us. He came to save us. And so Malachi describes a coming judgment Then he says, but for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness, and for those who aren't reading along with me, it's not S-O-N, it's S-U-N, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. What that means is that in the darkness of this world, there is coming a day when The dawn will come. True righteousness will be revealed. It will expose everything that needs to be exposed. And it will give hope and life to everyone who is awaiting that hope and that life. This passage was actually... Um, there was, a, there was a, a popular theological idea in the day of Jesus that this passage, this, this word, Son of Righteousness will come with healing in its wings, 
that word wings in the Hebrew was also used for the, the word for the, the, the tassel on the edges of a, of a Hebrew man's garment. Those, those tassels, were they were instructed by God to add these tassels to their garments as a reminder of the laws of God. And, um, and there was this popular belief that if someone were to, there, that there would be physical healing in the tassels of the Messiah when he comes. And so we have the woman with the issue of blood pushing through the crowd, saying, if I can only touch the, the edge of his garment, the tassels of his garment, the wings of his garment, the wings of the garment of the of the, of, of the Messiah, the one who is the son of righteousness, then I will be healed. It was recognized even that in that moment that Jesus coming on earth the first time was the beginning of this promise. But folks, when he comes again, when he comes again, the sun is going to rise. The dawn is going to come. Righteousness is going to be revealed. And God will change and transform everything. In the cross, the wrath of God meets the love of God. The self-sacrificing, self-giving love of God. That God said, in order to save humanity, I myself must take upon myself the full brunt of my wrath. So that those who will trust in me will be will be protected, will be saved from the wrath. And God's, God's mercy and his love meet his wrath in the cross. If you want to escape the wrath of God, then we need to turn from sin and embrace the cross. God is, God's wrath is coming to destroy sin. And all those who continue to cling to sin will be destroyed with it. But they don't have to be. They do not have to be. The love of God was poured out on the cross. That if we just trust in Him, if we just believe in Him, we are saved from His wrath. And so if we want to escape the wrath of God, we turn from sin and we embrace the cross. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. We are by nature children of wrath. We are by nature people who are, 
who will experience the wrath of God. Not because he's nasty, not because he hates you, but because his love must deal with sin. If we embrace the cross and trust in what the blood of Jesus has done for us, we are saved. Amen? Romans, one more scripture. And uh, while I'm saying this, let's um, let the worship team come on up and uh, those who are serving communion, prepare to do that. Romans, Romans 5 verse 9 says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, See, we, we like to justify ourselves, don't we? Oh, but that's not what I really meant. Oh, but that, those weren't my intentions. Oh, but I, I didn't really say it that way. No, that's, that's not what I did. You misunderstood. We like to justify ourselves, don't we? But justifying ourselves will not save us. But this passage says, since we have now been justified by his blood, it's only the blood of Jesus that justifies us. Right? Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? As we, as we receive the elements of communion, I, um, I want to encourage you, if you're here with us today and you believe Jesus as your Savior, you trust him, uh, you're welcome at our communion table with us. As the elements are passed out, um, feel free to, to, to take the cups that are there. Just uh, if, if this is the first time you're having communion with us, there's two cups, one inside the other. The bottom cup has a, a little wafer in it. The top cup has the juice. Take them both, separate them, and just hold on to them because we'll take them all together uh, after everyone has it in their hands. If you are visiting with us today and you are not yet in the place of trusting Jesus as your Savior and you're not ready to take communion, I want you to know that's okay. This is a place where you are safe and welcome to, to, uh, to explore who Jesus is, to explore faith at, at the pace that God has you at. But what a better time than right now to say yes to Jesus. So if you need to let that, that tray pass you, it's okay to do that. Don't feel awkward or embarrassed by that. Pass the tray on. Um, and as we're receiving the elements and we're singing this song of worship, focuses on the cross, I want to encourage you to think of 
as we said, how in the cross, the wrath of God has been met by the love of God. Folks, love conquers all. Amen. On a
Before Jesus went to the cross, he, he celebrated the Passover with his disciples. And in Matthew 26, verse 26, it says, While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. So Jesus, as we we are before you today, we recognize that as you hung on that cross, you took on your body my sin, my guilt my selfishness, my greed, my rebellious attitude to the Father. You took it all on your body. You were willing for your, your body to be broken, your life to be destroyed so that I could be saved. I thank you for bearing my sin in your flesh, in your body, all the way to the grave, so that the power of sin and death would be broken in my life. We remember the cost today of our freedom and our hope. Let us take the element represents his body. And then it goes on to say in verse 27, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, we thank you today for this new covenant. Thank you for what was poured out for us. Your blood on the cross. That you purchased our, our forgiveness, our healing, our wholeness, our hope. You redeemed us from sin and destruction. That you absorbed the wrath of God on yourself. 
so that we could live in the love of God. We thank you for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, let's take the elements of his blood. God, we thank you today. We thank you today for your covenant love that we have learned so much over the last six messages about your faithful love for us. Your faithful love that never lets go, that never gives up, that never stops pursuing our hearts, that never stops fighting for us, that leaves the 99 and goes looking for the one. Your covenant love, oh God, is so amazing. We give you thanks, we give you praise for your faithfulness to us today. God, I pray for every person in this room. That God, as, as, as they have, uh, God, often, often been in need of your mercy, your love, your grace, your kindness. God, you have shown yourself faithful again and again and again. God, I pray that, that if anyone here today, anyone watching online today, knows that they are in need of forgiveness, in need of rescuing, in need of surrendering to your love, in need of embracing the cross, believing in what Jesus has done for them. So that they would be forgiven and whole and rescued from the wrath of God. I pray that today would be the day. Today would be the day to say yes to Jesus. God, move in our hearts, move in our lives by your Spirit. God, for, the, for those of us that are staying after and, and we'll be heading downstairs in a bit to, to enjoy lunch together, I pray your, your blessing on our food, your blessing on our fellowship, that we would experience the love of God in one another today. We give you thanks in Jesus' name.
Just as we head downstairs for Soup Sunday, I wanted to mention a couple reminders. Um, worship team is going to keep playing, and you're welcome to stay and be prayed for. But as you head downstairs, please be patient with the people in the kitchen. All right, so we're going to line up, and we're going to allow uh, any of our visitors or moms with kids to go first for their food, okay? So if you can join us downstairs for a time together. Amen.